This is a Whole Observatory podcast. Hello, this is Cody Halfmoon, and in today's episode, we will be talking about a planetary defense mission that we're working on with NASA. Um, I probably made that sound very dramatic. At least that was my hope. Uh, so maybe our guests can clarify. But of course, also joined by co-host Haley Osborne. Hi, guys. And joining us today is Lowell astronomer Dr. Nick Moskovitz. Hello, everyone. And returning to the podcast, we've got Dr. Christina Thomas. Hi. Great to be back. Hello. Awesome. I'm sure you'll both be relieved when I stop haunting all of the scientists at Lowell to do podcast episodes. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really glad you guys are here. It's good to be here. So is that, uh, did that sound like a good, was that about accurate? A planetary defense mission? It sounds so dramatic and mysterious. I love it. Uh, yeah, so this is uh, NASA and, and effectively the, the world's first test at uh uh, planetary defense mission. And so this is specifically a kinetic impact experiment. And so we are going to uh, send our spacecraft, DART itself, straight into the moon of an asteroid called Didymos to change its uh, orbit around the um, the larger one. So Didymos is the primary, the, uh, the moon is named Dimorphos. And so we're actually going to crash into Dimorphos and change its orbit around Didymos. So uh, this is uh, a really exciting time, and I, I will point out probably several times, but uh, we also have a follow-up mission uh, from the European Space Agency that will launch in a couple of years and then go and look at the aftermath, essentially, of this experiment. I'm sorry, before we continue, did you just say the moon of an asteroid? Asteroids can have moons? I had no idea. Absolutely, they can have moons. Yeah, so that's uh, not something that was appreciated for a long time. And then it was sort of discovered in the 70s that some asteroids have moons going around them. And they're much smaller than our moon, certainly. Uh, Dimorphos, the moon wow. that the spacecraft is going to intentionally hit, is only about the size of a football stadium. But oh my God. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's asteroids with multiple moons in some cases. That is so cool. <laughs> I had no idea. Have you guys heard of the um, the food uh, argument? Is a hot dog a sandwich? Yes, yes, I have. Is a is a is a cereal a gazpacho? These kind of things. So uh, we discovered in our last podcast that the current one is now is an asteroid, a planet, a rogue planet. And the fact it has moons, I mean, you're you're really helping my case here. It is yeah. a planet. It's just we call them minor planets. So. Oh, that's awesome. You, you can give them any label you want. It doesn't really matter. I think what the bottom line is, is that they're really interesting and we get to smash spacecraft into them sometimes. <laughs> yeah. so we get to smash stuff. <laughs> uh, poor Didymus, Didymos, however you say it, little moon guy out there has no idea what's coming to him. Indeed, yeah. So the, the impact is really interesting. We had a, a team meeting just a couple of weeks ago, a, a full team meeting on the mission a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that came out of that meeting, one of the models that has been run, has suggested that Didy uh, or Dimorphos, the moon of, of Didymos, has never seen an impact the size of DART. And so it's been living out there in the solar system for millions of years, never really getting hit by anything <laughs> uh, uh, as large as the DART spacecraft. So 
it, it really has no idea what's coming. It's never experienced anything like this. And so that's minding kind of cool. its own business. Yeah. It's peaceful little life out flying yeah. through space. Yeah. And it got too close to the humans. I love the story. I want a revenge story later yeah. when it's asteroid buddies come, come back, but that's what we're preparing for. Right. That's exactly right. This is practice. Yeah. That's so cool. For when Didymos gets its revenge, we'll be ready. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of people have this idea, you know, and this comes from also, you know, big popular blockbuster movies, um, that the, the real key to planetary defense is, you know, like a, a nuclear explosion or, or something, something more like that. But a lot of people think that for many of the possibilities that exist, uh, a kinetic impact, essentially crashing one thing that has some known mass into the asteroid to change its orbit uh, is really the way to go because you also only have to make a relatively small change, especially if you have a lot of lead time, uh, because if you have a lot of time afterwards, that change just propagates through time and eventually would cause uh, an incoming asteroid to completely miss the planet. Okay. You brought it up. You've opened the floodgates. You brought up pop culture. We have to ask, since we're talking about asteroids and we ask about this every single time, have you guys seen the movie Armageddon? (laughs) Of course, and it's not as good as Deep Impact. It's so bad. <laughs> uh, but it's got the music, though. Um, it's got the tunes. It's got the vibes. It's got a bunch of Texan roughnecks who are flown to outer space to nuke a Brock. I mean, what could you want more? Uh, it's funny, the more that we kind of talk about asteroids and impossible ways to prevent them from smashing us, uh, I feel like... It, that's pretty probable, actually. I mean, not actually, not what happened Nuking in the movie, but you know, like people were like, "Well, maybe." <laughs> um, so, um, I think it's it's interesting, but I think I like your method better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and speaking of that, uh, can you guys tell us your involvement with this research and study, and um, maybe Nick specifically uh, for for Dart? Uh, how Lowell is involved, and I'm calling you out because I know that you did a talk at Lowell at, on Asteroid Day this summer. So, mm-hmm. sure, I, I can answer first. And you have your script good. already. Okay, perfect. Pull that out here. Christina definitely plays a key role in the mission as well, so she can answer for awesome. her side of things. But I'll speak specifically to what Lowell has been doing. Um, so, one of the reasons we're hitting uh, this asteroid in particular is because it's a, it's a good target for ground based studies using the telescopes that we have here at Lowell and other observatories around the world to study the, the, this object. Mm-hmm. And if it is not obvious, the spacecraft is not going to be feeling too good after after impacting uh, uh, Didymos. There's not going to be much spacecraft left. And so that really falls to ground-based observers like Christina and myself to, to uh, characterize and understand uh, what happened or what the aftermath of this impact was. And so um, that's a, a, a kind of a cool synergy between the spacecraft operations and everything that goes into launching and operating a spacecraft and then the telescopic side of things that we do here at the observatory. Um, Can you imagine building this thing? Like, what did it take? Probably, like, years to build this spacecraft, mm-hmm. and then you're just going to, like, totally destroy it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would be so sad. <laughs> Kamikaze spacecraft. <laughs> For the sake of science. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's what they did on uh, Venus, right? They're like, yeah, maybe we'll get three seconds out of this thing. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Well, very cool. So, um, Christina, do you mind telling us a bit about your personal role and the team here at, uh, at Lowell? 
um, in the ground-based observation? Sure. So I'm the lead of the observations working group uh, as part of the DART investigation team. And so we have a, a very specific structure, partially because we're a planetary defense mission. We're not uh, we're not part of the, the normal science mission um, groups that you normally see. Uh, so cool, Christina. And so, oh so my gosh. it's actually it's really, really exciting. And so we have very specific things that we need to do. And as, as Nick mentioned, the, the key to this uh, mission and the mission success ultimately is understanding um, the orbital period of Dimorphos around Didymos and how the impact hmm. changes that. And so we're going to be using all of these ground-based uh, telescopes all around the world in order to measure what we call the light curve uh, that is uh, able to essentially give us that motion by uh, blocking out some amount of light when the moon is either in front of or behind the larger object. And so uh, we can think of it a little bit like a clock. Uh, we know when we expect it to come back. And so we can use that to, to infer the, oh. that orbital period. And so we're looking for the change in the orbital period. And of course, it's way more complicated than that, just like everything else is right um, and and so we're going to be using telescopes all around the world and for the last several years uh since this really became a real mission one of the the biggest assets has been the little discovery telescope and and over at northern arizona university we also have a partnership and so we have time on the telescope as well and so uh nick and myself and our colleagues at the university of maryland who also have access to the telescope have been uh together working to make sure that we're always getting really great data from the ldt that's amazing. And so you, um, you said that you were kind of leading this, this effort. Does, does that mean that you're coordinating with, with, um, other similar parties around the world? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So it's, uh, I feel like my job right now is to send a lot of emails, uh, and oh, I feel that people... deep, deep in my soul, Christina, deep in my soul. I feel <laughs> that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I, I mostly tried to get people, um, the information that they need in order to make successful observations uh, and also understand who is planning to do those observations and when they're planning to do them. And so together we could start to put together a, a picture of what the next few months of observing really look like. And do you have a, the White House on speed dial? <laughs> no. Planetary defense. I mean, that sounds like you have a special badge, at least a nice lanyard. They, they, yeah. gave me, they gave me a sticker once. Oh, here we go. Oh. Okay, now we're talking about the good stuff. Yeah, All right. <laughs> so speaking of DART, um, I know I actually, uh, Nick, I went to your talk when you did it at Lowell for Asteroid Day, um, and you kind of went through like the timeline of DART and what um, like what's going to happen when it goes towards Dimorphos and Did Didymos. And so I was wondering if you could like share that with us. Uh, sure. I, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really kind of an exciting and really fast conclusion to the mission uh, that, you know, there'll be a period of time there for about, well, of course we're leading up to it for the days and weeks and months ahead of the, the impact, but it's really the sort of few hours right up to impact that, all the action takes place. And what I mean by that is the spacecraft doesn't really resolve or see in any detail Didymos until a, a few hours out. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't even see Dimorphos, I think, until an hour out. Wow. And at that point, the spacecraft more or less is going to go into an autonomous navigation mode. So it's essentially steering itself because things are going to oh. evolve so quickly that you can't reasonably send commands from the ground. So mm -hmm. you kind of just 
hands off and let the spacecraft find its way and navigate its own way in sort of like a self-driving car or something uh, to, to find that dimorphos and hit it. What is uh, NASA's contingency plan for when this spacecraft becomes sentient and decides it doesn't want to die? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a whole risk chart that the uh, mission has, and yes. I would guess in the corner of one of those, maybe at the low-risk level, is sentient <laughs> spacecraft decides to go off somewhere else. Uh, this is why NASA wouldn't hire me, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like anyone who has seen 2001 A Space Odyssey has to put that clause in there somewhere, just it like, has you to. know, just in case. Just in case. Um, and these fair. rocks are, I'm looking up a picture. They're so, like, smooth. They look like little eggs. They're so smooth and unperturbed by the world. <laughs> Not yeah. for long. Are you talking <laughs> about the, the Didymos Dimorpho shape models? Yes, I am. Yeah, I mean, so those have, uh, those mostly come from radar, at least for Didymos. Uh, so oh. that, that comes from radar observations from 2003, uh, when mm. it was particularly close. And in fact, this is going to be the closest approach since 2003, uh, which oh, is wow. part of why it's, it's going to be really exciting because we could do all sorts of observations. Um, but yeah, so there's going to be a lot of details filled in and, right. you know, who knows what the final guess is going to be. But uh, we only have a couple of very, very vague ideas of the shape of Dimorphos. Uh -huh. And uh, so I think that we're, you know, I think it's going to be a kind of a mind-blowing thing when we finally see it for the first time to see exactly uh -huh. um, how accurate any of our assumptions were. Yeah. And I, it, it, the shape models that we have now are really coarse. It's sort of like a blurred image. So all we really mm -hmm. see is these sort of rounded out potatoes. Yeah. And of course, as we get closer, they'll, they'll start, to, start like to see mountains and boulders and things like that. And actually, those details matter a lot because if the mm. spacecraft hits a boulder, that has a very different sort of outcome than if it hits like a you know sandy area that's lots of small particles. And that's mm -hmm. one of the you know, objectives for the mission is to figure out, okay, what happens when you smash a spacecraft into an asteroid? And in particular, what happens if you smash into the particular terrain that we hit? Mm-hmm. No, uh, and, and there's probably no like uh, sort of I've heard of like comet seeding. Um, we're not endangering any small aliens out there. I'm assuming. <laughs> I, I think it's safe to assume that there, there are no aliens hanging out <laughs> yeah. on, on uh, Diddy Moss. Um, funny would that be though? <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, um, I think it's so interesting because it it is such an like when you read about obviously this this mission. It's so intricate. It's so complicated and everything has to be ridiculously precise. And, you know, they just have some of the best minds um, working on this project around the world. But it's kind of like when you were a kid, you're like, what would I happen? What would happen if I like smashed this rock with bigger rock? You That's know, exactly <laughs> it is, I've said before that it's a rock hammer in space experiment. You look at what the thing looks like now and then you smash it really hard and then see what it looks like <laughs> afterwards. And yes, that is absolutely, you know, at the core of every sort of curious scientist. What does it look like inside? <laughs> <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> mm 
Haley, I know you had one uh, question that we got really excited, so we kind of skipped it. Um, I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah usually we asked this at the very beginning, but we just like jumped into Dart. But um, could you guys take a moment and tell us about like your background? You know, like what do you guys do? How did you get to where you are? Um, Christine, I know we've had you on before, so do you want to just remind our listeners? Sure. I mean, I don't honestly. I don't remember what I said last time. So it'll be a whole new surprise. <laughs> yeah. Make um, up something new just in case. <laughs> yeah. And so I've been uh, a ground-based observer essentially since I started graduate school. And it's been really exciting to, to learn how to do different techniques over the years. And so I was uh, primarily, and still, uh, you know, outside of DART, am primarily a spectroscopist, uh, which means that I use different wavelengths of light to try to understand things about the target asteroid. So that's mostly composition. But it could be a couple of other physical properties. Um, but really, I um, have been working on different kinds of photometry uh, on the side for a long time. And I was at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center uh, as a postdoctoral scholar when DART was really in the beginning phases. And so I was participating in a lot of meetings because uh, DART is headquartered out of the Applied Physics Laboratory, which is not that far away. Uh, from Goddard. And so I was, I was in a lot of meetings. I did a lot of the preliminary study work on, you know, when should we impact? What would the star fields look like at that time? How, you know, how would we be able to get our observations? How long would the windows be uh, for our mm-hmm. observations and all sorts of stuff like that. And so I did a lot of the, the really initial planning and that's essentially how I ended up uh, where I am today. Cool. And what about you, Nick? Yeah, so uh, I've been here at Lowell for about eight and a half years now. And throughout that time, uh, one of my main research interests has been in understanding asteroids that come close to the Earth, or things that we call near-Earth objects, NEOs. And so a lot of my observations (laughs) that I do are trying to understand NEOs, trying to understand how many there are out there, what are their properties, what what can we learn about them as a population. And uh, a, a sort of corollary to that is as you better understand these things, Mm-hmm. What kind of hazards did they pose if they were to, um, you know, if we were unfortunate enough to find one that actually is going to impact the Earth? So there's this sort of synergy between the fundamental science and the impact hazard mitigation uh, scenarios. Mm-hmm. So over and a half years, we've been building up the sort of tools and techniques to study these objects and understand them. And so it was a mm-hmm. natural fit when Dark came along. and. Yeah. It, it turned out we would already had done some of the observations that ultimately have supported the mission of Didymos. And so um, it was just sort of an, a natural alignment, I guess, with the mission activity and uh, my own research interests. And I should say, uh, Christina mentioned that we're an investigation team. It's kind of a unique thing for a, a NASA mission that there's an investigation team. Because And, and the, the key distinction there is that as an investigation team, we're really open to a huge number of collaborators and investigators around the world. Um, I don't know how big the investigation team is now, maybe 200, 300 people. Christina may know better than I, uh, but there's, it's really a, a global effort, which I think makes sense for something like DART, where you're you know, saving the planet Earth. You want everybody to be engaged and involved in this as much as possible. I know you have your low cams now. Did you, so you said you were looking for near earth objects. Did you work with Lonios, the, the search forum or the survey? Yeah. So Lonios was a survey that was carried out at Lowell, um, starting in the nineties, um, by, uh, uh, one of my predecessors, uh, Ted Bull. Um, he was one of the early NEO search programs in the world was Lonios Mm -hmm. and carried out here at Lowell for many years and was a highly successful project. 
Um, I came after Lonios had more or less finished up. Okay. Um, but you know, we reap the benefits of these discovery surveys that are out there finding these objects that we can then follow up and study in, in more detail. Gotcha. I couldn't remember when that program ended. So I was like, did that intersect or? Okay, cool. It's amazing. And I just want to say like Flagstaff is so freaking lucky to have both of you here. I, yeah. I want to emphasize how cool this is that these two people are here. I mean, mm -hmm. it's very neat. I know like reading y'all's bios, I know Christina, when I read your bio for the last podcast, I was like, holy crap, we get to like hang out with her. Right. <laughs> it's so cool. I mean, that's very kind, but it's, it's Flagstaff. You're absolutely right. Uh, Flagstaff is an amazing place for planetary science. Like mm -hmm. per capita, we probably have more planetary scientists than almost anywhere else in the world. And it's Fantastic. because of NAU, it's because of USGS, it's because of Lowell. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of really good people in town doing amazing stuff. And DART is one example of that, certainly. Uh, but it's, I feel really lucky to be in this. And, you know, it's a very vibrant planetary science environment where we have a lot of people working on asteroids and planets and satellites mm -hmm. and things like that. And it's comparable to any of the major sort of research hubs of the world, just in terms of the number of people here working in those topics. Yeah, it's so cool. It's like one of those things where when we were planning Asteroid Day with um, Meteor Crater, so we did an event with Meteor Crater to celebrate Asteroid Day, I think it was June 30th. And, um, you know, they were talking about like the big key speakers and they mentioned y'all's names, like, obviously, like they're, they're local. So we need to get them on here. It was just so cool. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh yeah, I've talked to Christina. Wow. Am I, am I a cool Flagstaff person? And, and I mean, yeah, it is. It's all of the incredible scientists up here make Flagstaff super unique. I do have to ask you an annoying question, Nick. Um, so okay. you're, you were working on NEOs, uh, NEOs. So we love our acronyms, right? <laughs> um, how tired are you of talking about aliens and UFOs? <laughs> you know, there's two questions that I get asked all the time as an astronomer. One is when is the next killer asteroid mm -hmm. going to come get us? Good and question. We'll cover is, that next. Yeah, yeah. And, and then the other is, you know, have you ever seen aliens through your telescope? And <laughs> right, right. The answer is, I don't worry about it, and no. Mm -hmm. and yeah. <laughs> that you know of. That I know of. So, so. <laughs> but, you know, I, I would say I'm a believer. They're, they're, you know, even if we have not necessarily Ooh. detected them yet, um, I, I think you know, the probability of mm -hmm. life being out there somewhere in the cosmos and all these other worlds that we're starting to discover outside of the solar system and even places inside of the solar system. There's, there's got to be life somewhere out there. Yeah, right. the universe is way too big for us to be all that there is. Like, there's yeah. no way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, literally so, just from a logistical point. There's no way. <laughs> so I did hear, though, that uh, if there is life out there, we would be the older brother because of the age of the universe and how long it takes for a star to get uh, to, like, pop two or three. And, you know, like, the certain timing of it, like, we might be the most advanced species that will be able to, you know as far as like how long it takes for a society to advance. But, um, I don't know if that was someone's a philosophy uh, podcast for that, because that's, that's something that's hard <laughs> for science to address. That's, you know, what do you, that's what do you true. Feel? How do you, what do you believe? Mm -hmm. Well, we won't ask you about any UFOs. 
Um, <laughs> though I guess most of what you research are UFOs. They're unidentified until you identify them, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, that's a rock. Um, <laughs> very, very cool. I'm sure that once uh, people learn what the both of you do, their eyes light up. I, mm-hmm. I can't imagine a different reaction. So I hope you guys never get tired of that because that's super neat. It is actually really exciting to to have these kind of conversations uh, about DART because you know, every once in a while you get stuck in the weeds about what we're doing and, and the day-to-day processes. But when we really kind of step back and take a bigger uh, look around, you know, we can really remind ourselves what, um, what a great field we're in, uh, both the people that surround us and also uh, the work that we get to do. Absolutely. And, and you know, it, it's hard. You, you, as a scientist, you don't want to put yourself in any, you know, you don't want to assign yourself a special circumstance. You know, you mm-hmm. kind of try to view yourself and what you do in the, a larger context. And uh, imagine what we do as part of a continuum that started well before we ever got here and will continue beyond. But one of the things that, to me that's really exciting about planetary defense and what DART is doing and you know, sort of where we're going as a uh, scientific body is that we're getting good at discovering these things. And mm-hmm. I think within our lifetimes, we will have discovered the vast majority, if not all of the objects that could pose a hazard to the Earth. So that's, you know, the sort of first step in planetary defense. You got to find them before they find you. And right. art is the first step in doing something about it, right? So mm-hmm. if we were to find something that's dangerous that could hit us, DART will at least give us one data point for how effective mm-hmm. this technique of smashing something into an asteroid would be. In reflecting <laughs> it. And there's lots of other crazy techniques out there that we have not tested and maybe someday we will, but... It's an exciting time to be in this this particular field because yeah. we're finding these things at historic rates and we're actually doing something about it with DART. The first step of the Federation, my friend. We're almost there. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of define planetary defense the best way I've probably heard any definition on this podcast is find it before it finds you. Uh, is that sort of the kind of the best summary of what planetary defense is because it's you know, uniting the whole planet in a defense uh, plan. Is that, I think it's, is that it's accurate? The start. I think it's half the problem, right? It's mm-hmm. you find it. Okay, now if we find something that's hazardous, what do we do about it? And uh, mm-hmm. we can work on those two problems in parallel, and that's exactly what we're doing. We have next generation telescopes that will be coming online and finding more asteroids than we've ever found before. And then we have things like DART and hopefully successors uh, to DART that will test techniques for how to actually deflect something. So I think those are the two two pieces of planetary defense. Find them and then deflect them. And mm-hmm. uh, there's interesting things happening in both of those, those areas right mm-hmm. now. Checkmate asteroids. We're three steps ahead. <laughs> right. And to really uh, you know, hammer that point home, the second mission from the Planetary Defense Coordination Office at NASA is a discovery mission. Uh, and so it's a space telescope that's supposed to um, discover a lot of the NEOs that we've potentially missed. It's called NEO Surveyor. And so that's currently in process right now. Hmm. Okay, cool. How do you use the LDT? Because I know that's an instrument that you are familiar with. Sure. So, I mean, LTT is... Uh, oh, yeah. And what is it? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry the, Lowell, the Lowell Discovery Telescope. So that's Lowell's flagship telescope. It's a four-meter mm-hmm. telescope south of Flagstaff here. Um, 
LDT is kind of is sometimes classified as a Swiss Army knife of telescopes. It has mm-hmm. lots of instruments and it can do lots of different science. And even on a given night, we may be looking at distant galaxies one minute, and then the next part of the night we're looking at asteroids right up close to home, and then the next part of the night we're looking at exoplanets or around other stars or something like that. So it can be really diverse. Uh, one of the things, however, that LDT can't really do is uh, survey large patches of the sky. Um, the instrumentation mm-hmm. that is on board is not as amenable to discovery as something like Neo Surveyor would be. Um, and so we are better suited to sort of studying objects that we know about and characterizing and studying them in ways that, you know, for example, like Didymos and uh, 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 the work that we've done at LDT to support DART. Uh, that's, that's sort of our niche and, and the, the type of observations that are typically done there. Cool. Yeah. And, um, I did have a question about DART itself. Um, so like I've worked at Lowell for five years. I know that, uh, it's got tons of instruments that we can put on it that do different things. What kind of instruments are on DART? Like, what do they do? DART's actually a very simple spacecraft. Uh, it really only has one instrument and that's the camera. And the camera is also really critical to the final navigation. It's, um, as Nick mentioned, an autonomous uh, final uh, sequence. And so that camera called Draco is what's going to be taking the images for that smart navigation uh, at the end. And the only other thing that's on DART uh, is a contributed CubeSat from the Italian Space Agency called Licia Cube. Uh, And that's going to be released several days uh, before the impact itself. And so um, it's actually a very simple spacecraft. What's uh, the the cube going to do? Uh, primarily, it's going to Im- image the uh, ejecta from the impact, so all of the material that comes off that in the creator uh, creation of the crater itself. Uh, and so, I think it's going to be really exciting when those first images come down. That's going to be so cool. I remember you talking about that, Nick. I I totally had forgotten until you just mentioned it. Yeah, so it's a really nice add-on to the mission. It's a great way, again, kind of emphasizing the international aspect of this project that we've got, you know, NASA and ESO, or Italian Space Agency, collaboration here. And it's going to provide a really unique vantage, of course, because it's right there. It's a little CubeSat. It's not much bigger than sort of a, a cereal box. Um, mm-hmm. But it's going to be flying by pretty close and uh, get a great view of the, of the ejecta as it gets kicked off the surface of uh, Dimorphos. I think what maybe doesn't get thought of are all of the emotions happening in the critical moments uh, before the impact leading up to the impact uh, do you guys have sort of an emotion high yet from gets this mission and how much energy has been put into it? Um, because I know a lot of, you know, what you need to do and ob- observing is like making sure that the impact happens. Right. So what, uh, do you have anxiety about that or, yeah. uh, what, what are your biggest concerns of what could go wrong that might affect things in a, you know? You know, these missions are amazing because, you know, it's hundreds of amazingly brilliant people that are involved in making sure they go forward. And at this point, we, ground-based observers, those of us you know, that are using telescopes to study these objects, are kind of just biding our time. We're waiting for 
-hmm. the spacecraft to hit because that's when things are really going to get intense for us. And that's where, mm -hmm. you know, on some level, that's kind of when things get real, right? We're mm -hmm. gonna, it, all eyes are going to be on us to be delivering the data and the analysis that says, okay, here's what we think the outcome of that impact was in a, in a very specific and quantitative way that can be translated into planetary defense applications. So for mm -hmm. me, I've been you know, thrilled to see all the success. I was able to go out and see the launch last year. Christina was there as well. Um, and that was spectacular. But I, I, on some level, it's like I'm a little bit, you know, sort of standing back and watching all, all the, the, the great work that the engineers and uh, those who have designed the mission, uh, seeing all that great work come to fruition. And then after impact, that's when we really need to step up as observers and, and kind of take, take it from there. Uh, what would be, what would be the worst thing to happen with this little boy besides him being coming sentient and taking off? <laughs> I mean, I think that depends on a, a couple of different perspectives, right? Oh, um, mm -hmm. you know, one of the big things about asteroids that we've, we've been learning as time goes on is that they're not quite, um, the monolithic single rock that people envision them to be. And so, you know, if you think about the pictures of Bennu that Osiris Rex took, it was a very different surface than what we were expecting. And so I think there's some amount of uncertainty as to what the overall object of Dimorphos is going to be like. And then, as Nick said earlier, which part of that object are we going to hit? Are we going to hit a soft part? Are we going to hit a boulder? Mm -hmm. And all of these things are going to have uh, different implications for essentially the period change that we're going to measure. I just looked at pictures of the Osiris Rex. He's uh, very rocky. Lots of like really small rocks. That's surprising to me. I would think they would have flown off. Um, yeah, you know, that, that asteroid Bennu is a, a weird one. Um, all kinds of surprises. And I think this is, you know, just the nature of planetary exploration and in particular sort of the, the age that we're in where we are still going to classes of objects for the first time. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to the first example of a population. And so when we get there, we discover all these weird things that we didn't expect. And Bennu is a great example of that where we got there and the surface looks in some ways familiar to things on Earth, but in other ways not at all. And then one of the oh, amazing really? discoveries from Bennu is that it's active, that particles are coming off of its surface. And I what? think we don't even really know why that's the case. This would be sort of like low-level activity, analogous maybe to a comet, but not. It's different. It's something else is going on that we don't understand. And so every time we go somewhere, we get surprised, which is exciting. And I'm sure there will be surprises <laughs> about Dimorphos and Didymos. We've never looked at a binary asteroid in, in the level of detail that we will with this, this mission. So I'm sure we will find mm -hmm. out things that surprise us and catch us off guard. Do you get to watch the live cam of the impact? The whole world will. Uh, yeah, it'll nice. be broadcast live on NASA TV. So, yeah, we will be oh, watching yeah. that. I mean, I'm, I don't have any inside track, and I don't think there is any inside track. It's, you know, nice. everybody's going to be watching as this thing unfolds. I will That's definitely so cool. be glued to YouTube that day. <laughs> right. And one of the things to note is that the, the first images from the uh, CubeSat are going to come down for probably about 24 hours. And so we're going to know that it happened, but we're not going to be able to see it for, for a day. And it's, it's really going to be um, kind of nerve wracking because everyone is very excited to see the aftermath. Mm -hmm. so we will get that last image from the spacecraft. And I, the estimate is that it will be anywhere sort of like one to three minutes before impact. We'll get, oh no, sorry, one to three seconds before impact. Yeah. 
we'll get one last image, you know, probably be a partial image because the download will not have finished when the spacecraft hits. And so it's not transmitting anymore. So you'll get some, some kind of partial image that was captured right, you know, the instant before impact. And so that oh, come down pretty macabre. quickly, if I'm not mistaken. Christina may know the exact time for that one. That is so macabre, Nick. <laughs> uh, I mean, so so I, there, I don't know that there is an exact time right now. In fact, there's like a, a, a survey out to the team where people can put their best guesses for certain things. And included nice. on that survey is the exact time of the, um, of the last image. I love that. That reminds me of like the baby showers, you know, when they're like, when's the baby due? <laughs> oh gosh. I was thinking of Reddit with the, like the subreddit called last images. Oh, uh, it's really dark. Sorry. <laughs> it's very creepy, um, but also really cool. I will be, I didn't know they were just live streaming it. So I'll be watching for sure. Yeah. So we're talking about like what DART is going to do, what we're excited for and everything. Um, could you guys tell us what DART has done so far? There's a lot that's been going on, especially on the investigation team side, which you know, I could speak mm-hmm. to a lot better than the engineering side. Um, yeah. And really all of it is work that people are doing in preparation for the impact itself. And so everyone has been working very hard to set themselves up for success, essentially. You know, what do we think that ejecta that comes off of the surface after impact, what is that ejecta plume going to look like? How much material is going to come off? And so people have been running models uh, to, to think about that, to think about what exactly is the CubeSat going to see from where the CubeSat will be at that time. Um, there's a lot of work going on in the dynamics uh, working group. And, and those are the folks that think about uh, orbits and stability and the way that bodies rotate. And, and there's, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that word dynamics. And, and so they in particular have been very busy. Um, and I kind of joke with them because I, I feel like they're trying to make our, our job as observers very difficult because they're predicting mm-hmm. all of these things that could possibly happen to the orbit and to the, the moon after the impact. And so some of them say that the moon will do a libration, which is kind of like a, a little bit of a wobble as it orbits, you know, and, mm. and there are all of these things that will impact our observations, potentially not very much. In fact, likely not very much. In fact, we might not be able to see it at all, but could be really interesting if we can pull out that signal. And so uh, really everyone's been setting themselves up for, for that moment uh, and try to think about what that is. And, and that extends to the people who think about the creation of the impact crater itself um, and you know every angle that you could think of to think about this as a scientific problem has somebody working on it. I fully thought for a second that you were going to say they're setting themselves up for failure. And I was like, oh, my gosh, (laughs) (laughs) that makes much more sense. (laughs) I could add just one, maybe a couple of things, things to that, that, um, you know, this is a before and after experiment, right? We, Mm -hmm. we, we now know what the system looks like now before impact and then impact happens and we have to figure out what it looks like after impact. And Alicia cube will help with the aftermath. Ground-based telescopes will happen with the aftermath, but the understanding of the before state has been a concerted effort for almost 20 years now of ground-based telescopes studying this system uh, since its discovery and collecting data and providing the sort of initial conditions for what is this Didymos and Dimorphos, what what do they look like before we've done anything Mm -hmm. to it? And Mm -hmm. 
that, that sets us up for success. And if it were not for these you know, decades of work for some people, um, we would not be able to do this, this mission. Uh, That's so cool. I, I like, I like Christina, I'm not all that connected to the engineering side of things. Um, but have been able to witness sort of some of the things that they've been doing on the engineering side. And one of the key aspects of this mission is the test demonstration that we're doing. Can we actually hit a space? Can we actually hit an asteroid with the spacecraft in a, in a you know, intentional way? Mm-hmm. And that means a lot relying on this auto navigation system to perform that, uh, navigation and, and trajectory maneuvers to get onto the asteroid. And, uh, to ensure that that software and hardware is in place and working properly, the mission has been doing a lot of tests leading up to um, the impact. And so what they're doing now as the spacecraft is cruising towards the asteroid is going through fake um, auto-nav simulations where they will pick binary stars or they will look at Jupiter and its moons and pretend that is the sort of binary system that they're targeting and see what auto-nav does to see if it makes the right choices and navigates to the right body. Um, cool. So that's been really interesting to just see how these sort of test cases work out. And it's you know, a natural thing for a spacecraft to do when it's in cruise. And uh, we're excited, of course, when those tests become the real thing. Yeah, totally. Um, I did want to ask about one specific thing that I like just read when I was looking up stuff to ask you guys about. Um, mm-hmm. Didn't it like take a picture of a star? Uh, was that just like testing out its cameras? Yeah, it's taken uh, several different pictures, including a, a set of pictures of Jupiter. And so there uh-huh. are a couple of uh, photos uh, that have been released uh, from the DART um, camera, which is called Draco. Uh, and I think they're planning to release a couple of others to the public in the near future. Gotcha. When you were explaining it, Nick, I totally thought you meant that they were testing out like just an auto nav that they had like here on Earth or something. Uh, I no, didn't realize no. you meant like the actual craft. Yeah, that's absolutely. cool. That's really yeah. cool. So it's testing the full system, essentially, with the exception of, you know, you're not steering the spacecraft to Jupiter. Um, you're just right. you know, collecting the images and seeing how the software processes those images and decides whether yeah. or not it goes to the right place. And as far as I know, those experiments have all been successful and uh, things are looking good. Awesome. So cool. So I have a question, um, sort of to, I, I know one of our questions is actually, what do you expect DART to tell us about asteroids? And I think the answer we kind of heard was, you know, uh, we'll find out, <laughs> right? So we'll see when we get there, what we're going to learn. Um, and I know that's, that might not be the primary mission here is to see what this asteroid's made of, but I am curious, um, what is the expectation or is there an expectation? Is this just kind of like, let's do this and see what happens or. Um... Yeah, there absolutely is an expectation and there's level uh-huh. one requirements related to all aspects of the mission and cool. our level one requirement in terms of how much we change the orbit of this moon around Didymos, how much we mm-hmm. change the orbit of Dimorphos is that we change it by 73 seconds or more. Oh, and that that if we do that, then we've met that requirement, and then it becomes, that is so specific. It is incredibly specific, and I think we would all be shocked if we changed it by exactly seventy three seconds. I think the expectations <laughs> are that we will change it by a little bit more than that. Uh, nominal cool. nominal is a few minutes, kind of thing. Right. Why seventy three? That is just the most random thing I've 
heard in a very long time. Christina? You know, I, it's it's been in the requirements for such a long time that I don't remember, but it, <laughs> it, it carries forward. Uh, and so that the error allowed on that 73 second change uh, is 7.3 seconds. And so it, it really just kind of has dug its way into the entire level one requirement structure that that 73. Seven point the so the error range of seventy three seconds is seven point three three seconds. 10%, yeah. yeah. Wow, this is um, I mean, like matrix glitch level, like <laughs> uh, random. It's fantastic. Whenever I don't have an answer for something like that, I just say, "Oh yeah, it's just math." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> math something. Because like, who's gonna argue with you? You know, if you're just like, "Yeah, it was in the math." <laughs> right. Well, also, if you're that specific, no one's gonna be like, "Oh," you know. If you say, mm -hmm. "Oh," in 73 seconds, I feel like no one's gonna ask because that sounds like <laughs> math they don't want to talk about. So they're like, "Oh, cool, okay." That's true. It's going to take us at least a few weeks to understand what the actual period change is uh, and to mm -hmm. release that out, um, you know, and we're going to be updating it throughout the entire observing window. So we're actually going to be obtaining these light curves to measure the orbital period of uh, Dimorphos around Didymos until next March, so March of 2023. And so we're going to be continually updating what the new period is and, and figuring out that period change to really really fantastic accuracy throughout that entire time. So wow. um, don't expect to hear the next day yeah. um, <laughs> exactly what it was. Yeah. And uh, for those listening to this podcast, if you had so many questions for, uh, for Christina, too bad. She's busy now. <laughs> next, it's going to be a while. Um, well, that's super exciting. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't believe we're at the end of our, time for this conversation already. There were a few more questions we didn't get to, but fascinating research, super privileged and just really excited and quite chuffed to be able to talk to you guys so casually, um, you know, just hanging out in Flagstaff. I'll mm -hmm. see you at Kroger's, you know, I mean, that's really right. cool. So very neat to have you on here and um, that Lowell is a part of that in some way. Mm -hmm. The big way. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so uh, thanks for coming. And to all of, all of our listeners out there, I would like to remind you that we do have our Discord channel and our Twitter where you can see some cool behind-the-scenes content. Uh, you can also use the hashtag, hashtag AskStarStuff to ask us any questions you guys might have about life, the universe, and everything. So uh, right. thanks for coming, Christina and mm -hmm. Nick. It was a really great conversation. Mm -hmm. Which we'll have to say instead of 42, the answer is 73. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was made possible by our members and donors. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support our nonprofit in making more digital education like this available, go to lowell.edu slash donate. Thanks for listening. <laughs>